This podcast is a production of the Ephesus School Network. Then the voice that I had heard from heaven spoke to me again, saying, Go, take the scroll that is open in the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. So I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll. And he said to me, Take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I had eaten it, my stomach was made bitter. And I was told, You must again prophesy about many peoples and nations and languages and kings. Revelation 10, 8-11 you are listening to the Tell Me the Story podcast with your hosts, Blaze Webster and Rowdy Wind. Join us as we engage in a complete read-through of the Holy Scriptures, parsing out the original languages with one question in mind. What is the story? Welcome to another episode of Tell Me the Story. This is your host, Blaze Webster. It's been a while, but God willing, from now on there will be more consistent output on my end. From the onset of this podcast, the project at hand has been to learn the Bible through the lens of the original languages, and in particular, how the Hebrew language functions and interacts with the story being told. More than it being about me teaching something, this is more me learning as I go along in this journey. This podcast is here to keep me accountable, and if you find it helpful, I invite you to learn along with me. So without any further delay, let's get into the text. So narrative-wise, we finally have the climactic moment where Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. I'm going to read the entirety of the chapter because it is self-explanatory enough that I don't need to break it up into sections the way we have done in other chapters. However, this incident is a great opportunity to discuss the notion of peace in Semitic languages. But uh, with that said... Um, I'm going to go ahead and read the chapter, and then we'll talk about the Semitic idea of peace after uh, I have read through it. Then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, Make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers. And he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. So Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you have sold into Egypt. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you have sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Hurry and go up to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me lord of all Egypt. Come down to me, do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen, and you shall be near me, you and your children, and your children's children, and your flocks, your herds, and all that you have. And there I will provide for you, 
And for there are yet five years of famine to come, so that you and your household and all that you have do not come to poverty. And now your eyes see, and the eyes of my brother Benjamin see, that it is my mouth that speaks to you. You must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept, and Benjamin wept upon his neck, and he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. And after that, his brothers talked with him. When the report was heard in Pharaoh's house, Joseph's brothers have come. It pleased Pharaoh and his servants. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Say to your brothers, Do this. Load your beasts and go back to the land of Canaan, and take your father and your households and come to me, and I will give you the best of the land of Egypt, and you shall eat the fat of the land. And you, Joseph, are commanded to say, Do this. Take wagons from the land of Egypt for your little ones and your wives, and bring your father and come. Have no concern for your goods, for the best of all the land of Egypt is yours. The sons of Israel did so, and Joseph gave them wagons according to the command of the Pharaoh and gave them provisions for the journey. To each and all of them he gave a change of clothes, but to Benjamin he gave three hundred shekels of silver and five changes of clothes. To his father he sent as follows ten donkeys loaded with good things of Egypt and ten female donkeys loaded with grain, bread, and provision for his father on the journey. Then he sent his brothers away, and as they departed, he said to them, Do not quarrel on the way. So they went up out of Egypt and came to the land of Canaan to their father Jacob, and they told him, Joseph is still alive. He is the ruler of all the land of Egypt, and his heart became numb, for he did not believe them. But when they told him all the words of Joseph, which he had said to them, and when he saw the wagons that Joseph had sent to carry him, The spirit of his father Jacob revived, and Israel said, It is enough. Joseph, my son, is still alive. I will go and see him before I die. So as I said, the notion of peace in Semitic languages will be the focus of this particular episode. In English, we usually have this perception of peace as being essentially a state of nonviolence. And while that's certainly an aspect to peace as a universal idea, in Semitic languages it is more precisely the rendering of a situation to its natural state. In other words, it is returning things to the way they are supposed to be. I was taught by Father Paul Tarazi in a recent Zoom session that in Arabic, the same root for peace, salam, is often used in news stories where someone comes out of a car accident unharmed. There is a natural, Semitically peaceful end to the situation. In this sense, it can mean safe. We actually see this play out in the Bible in Genesis 33:18, which in English, after Jacob had come from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem. That word that gets translated in English as safely is shalem, which is from that same root. In peace, of course, in Hebrew, we know that it's shalom. It's from that same triliteral root. So that's the sense that we have in in Hebrew. That's what it means. It's a rendering of things as they are supposed to be. So in the story of Joseph and his brothers, this reunion is not peaceful in the sense that they are now free from conflict and they're like friends again or anything like that. It's this peaceful sense that they are 
functionally brothers again, in that the household of Jacob is restored. Joseph's forced exile and enslavement in Egypt was unnatural because the Beit Israel, that is, the household of Israel, was splintered and Joseph was presumed dead. This is critical to understand because the drama around the scriptural story is based on a struggle between God and man. God creates his natural world in the first two chapters of Genesis. Elements such as light and darkness have clear, cyclical functions as day and night, and the waters are separated by dry land, so they are in their own place and thus not destructive. The plants and later the animals multiply by producing and spreading seed, and the seasons are regulated by the movement of celestial bodies. The sea creatures swarm in the water, and the birds fly in the air, and the land animals creep on the Adama, that is, the ground. And then out of the Adama, God creates Ha-Adam, who is the Obed, that is, the worker of the ground tending to it. Ha-Adam is made male and female, and like the other animals, must reproduce in order to establish progeny. Human beings are virtually identical to the other land animals in scripture, with the one distinction being their role as stewards of the earth and the living creatures inhabiting it. Thus, the natural state of man, according to scripture, is to live as a shepherd in the open air of creation, taking care of the animals as a viceroy to the sole ultimate authority and sovereignty of God. Man gradually upsets this order, first with his insistence in the forming of Eve out of his flesh and bones, thus making the woman subject to him. Next is the attempt to be like God in the garden by means of gaining knowledge of good and evil. And finally, we have the major event from which sparked the downward spiral of mankind in scripture, that being the slaughter of Abel, the shepherd, by his brother Cain, whose name in Hebrew means spear, but it is also from a root meaning to be obtained as in ownership. Cain starts a trend of building a city which leads to a kingdom under the monarch Lamech, an attempt, of course, to compete with God's sovereignty. Seth is appointed by God as a replacement and is the work of God establishing a peaceful resolution in the wake of a violent action, which will become the theme here. Later, of course, the flood brings a momentary relief as emphasized in Noah's name, but that too comes to an end. The single family spawned from Noah and his three sons become the fathers of all mankind, but they attempt to one-up Cain's legacy and give him a run for his money by building the Tower of Babel. But the events lead God to scatter the people all over the face of the earth. And so then you have this unnatural situation because humanity, just like Joseph and his brothers, are functionally one family. We all spawn from Noah's three sons. So the biblical story then is the work of God to reunite humanity, not under human kings and human identities, but under the aegis of God himself. Abraham, the Abhamon Goim, which in Hebrew is the father of many nations, 
becomes the patriarch, not of an ethnic group, but of all of those who live according to God's statutes expressed in faith, which we hear from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 3.7. The journey towards a peaceful resolution is always via the work of God in Scripture. The sons of Jacob upset the peace when they sell Joseph into slavery, but God makes Joseph successful, misliah, in Egypt, which makes Egypt prosperous. So when Canaan ends up in famine, Jacob unknowingly sends his sons back to Joseph, thus making things the way they are meant to be. We can also see this with the diaspora of the Israelites. The two major exiles of Samaria and Judah are punishments, but it is those exiles which gradually work to bring the nations under God's Torah. For instance, in the book of Kings, persecution by Israelite kings forces the Israelite prophets to go outside of the community of Israel to bring prosperity and healing to the outsiders in a manner very similar to Joseph's narrative. In 1 Kings 17, we have the story of Elijah raising the Phoenician widow's son. This happens because Elijah is forced into the town of Zarephath in Lebanon because he is evading King Ahab of Israel. In 2 Kings, we have an example where Elijah's successor, Elisha, heals a leper who just so happens to be an Aramean. At this point in the narrative, the kingdom of Aram Damascus was one of the military enemies of Israel, so this healing stands out. The leper's name is Naaman, which comes from the Semitic root meaning grace or favor. So Elisha goes out of the bounds of Israel to heal an Aramean leper by giving him favor and grace and having him bathe in the Jordan River seven times, thus showing that grace and favor. The importance of this cannot be missed and is echoed specifically by Jesus as an example in the Gospel of Luke, where he says, Truly I say to you, no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. But in truth I tell you, there are many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah, when the heavens were shut up three years and six months, and a great famine came over all the land. And Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who was a widow. And there were many lepers in Israel in the time of the prophet Elisha, and none of them was cleansed, but only Naaman the Syrian. There are a few more instances worth discussing, this time found in the Ketubim, which is the final section of the Hebrew Bible. In the book of Daniel, we find a clear parallel with the Joseph narrative in Genesis, where Daniel is made prosperous in exile and becomes a blessing to foreign kings who have subjugated his people. The first example is Nebuchadnezzar, who elevates Daniel to a high position after Daniel successfully interprets his dreams. Of course, this is similar to the Joseph narrative. Nebuchadnezzar is even brought down and humiliated by God to the point of losing his sanity and becoming like a wild animal, eating grass and walking all fours. Amazingly, though, by the end of the ordeal, he elevates Daniel and Daniel's God by saying, Truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. 
The next example is Nebuchadnezzar's son, Belshazzar, who has a striking name that is very similar to Daniel's Aramaic name, which was given to him by Nebuchadnezzar, which was Belteshazzar. This is the famous incident where Belshazzar is holding a feast drinking wine with sacred vessels pillaged from the ruins of the Jerusalem temple. Because of his arrogance towards God and lack of humility that his father Nebuchadnezzar had displayed, a hand by itself in midair writes the words Mene, Mene, Tekel, Upharsin on the wall. Belshazzar is terrified and calls Daniel to interpret. And this is Daniel's response. This is the interpretation of the matter. Mene, God has numbered the days of your kingdom and brought it to an end. Tekel, you have been weighed in the balances and found wanting. Perez, your kingdom is divided and given to the Medes and the Persians. Belshazzar later rewards Daniel, but the judgment still stands and he is killed that very night by the Persian king Darius. And this is where the narrative solidifies even more. With the arrival of the Persians, a group of people who weren't even Semitic but Indo-Aryan, we have a stronger and more consistent acceptance of the scriptural God, even to the extent of Cyrus being functionally God's Messiah in the Old Testament. In Daniel chapter 6, King Darius is tricked by those jealous of Daniel's position to throw him into the lion's den, which is another famous story. And when God keeps the lions from eating Daniel, Darius rejoices and praises the God of Israel in a way that we haven't seen a foreign king praise the scriptural God thus far. Then King Darius wrote to all the peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in the earth, Peace be multiplied to you. I make it decree that in all my royal dominion, people are to tremble in fear before the God of Daniel. For he is the living God, enduring forever. His kingdom shall never be destroyed, and his dominion shall be to the end. He delivers and rescues. He works signs and wonders in heaven and on earth. He who has saved Daniel from the power of the lions. So this Daniel prospered during the reign of Darius, in the reign of Cyrus the Persian. And then we have the very last words of the Hebrew Bible, which are the words of Cyrus the king, a foreign king, acknowledging the authority of the scriptural God as his instrument in accordance with Isaiah 45. At the end of Second Chronicles, the last book of the Hebrew Bible, we hear, Now in the first year of Cyrus king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and also put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all of the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever is among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go up. Now this is impressive in its own right. But it is even more impressive when we remember that throughout the story of the prophet Jeremiah, it is precisely the Israelites and the Judeans who persecute him, not the outsiders. Again, this is channeled by Jesus when he says that no prophet is acceptable in his hometown. Jeremiah is attacked primarily by the priests. In Jeremiah 11, it is the Levites of Anathoth. 
in chapter 20, it is Pashur the priest, where it says, Now Pashur the priest, the son of Immer, was the chief officer in the house of the Lord, heard Jeremiah prophesying these things. Then Pashur beat Jeremiah the prophet and put him in the stocks that were in the upper Benjamin gate of the house of the Lord. Very pointedly towards our discussion, when Jeremiah is thrown into a cistern for imprisonment, it is the outsider, the Ethiopian Ebed-Melech, which means the slave of the king, who appeals to the Judahite king Zedekiah to rescue Jeremiah. And where the Persian kings at the end of the scriptural story heeded to God's instruction, it is the Judahite king Jehoiakim who burns and destroys the scroll with the words of God in Jeremiah 36. So we can see how this story at the end of Genesis is preparing us narratively for the gradual acceptance of the scriptural God by the nations as initiated and hoped for by the outsider Persian monarchs. And finally, we see the point of the scriptural, i.e. Semitic, peace. It is achieved by submission to God's authority and cannot be initiated by man. Of course, it's no coincidence that in Arabic, the word for submission is Islam, which comes from that same Semitic root, salam, in Arabic, because it is, it is a complete surrendering to God, which is exactly how it works in the biblical narrative. That is why it is so offensive to God when the false prophets, again in the book of Jeremiah, falsely claim that there is peace in the current state of affairs when God himself has not initiated it. That is why Jesus says that he has come not to bring peace, but a sword. In other words, he's not coming to uphold the status quo of yet another revolutionary and violent messianic claimant bent on the military takeover of Roman Judea in the installment of yet another man-made Jewish dynasty. This is an idea that is in abhorrence in both Testaments and is precisely what the Pauline school was combating in the New Testament literature. So that concludes today's episode. I hope you found it helpful, and I'm excited to be back next week as we continue to the end of the book of Genesis and into the rest of the Torah. Charisimin ke irinia potu theopatros, ke kiriuimon isu Christu, nin ke ai ke istu seonas toneonon. Amen.